Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Happiness and Humans. My name is Matt Phelan, and I am here with the amazing Sarah White and Shreya Char. Um, Char, um, how are you doing, guys? Good, thank you. Very good, thank you. Um, let's um, let's let's do introductions. Um, Sarah, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I'm director of something called the Relational Wellbeing Collaborative, which has as its mission to um, spread understanding of, of a, a relational approach to well-being to the world. Um, and I'm formerly um, a professor in international development and well-being at the University of Bath. Thanks, Sarah. Shreya? Um, thanks, Matt. I'm associate director at the Relational Wellbeing Collaborative, um, working with Sarah. I am a social development practitioner and working on well-being for many years now. Thanks, Shreya. And Shreya, before we get into the questions, can you, because um, I think, I think, oh, you're the second double act we've had on here. Um, but Shreya, can you give us the, the background on how you guys met and, and, and careers started crossing over into uh, wellbeing, which is what we're going to be discussing? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was a student at Bath about... 12 or 13 years ago and where Sarah was teaching and that's how we met and when I completed my studies at Bath um, as it happened I was returning to India where I'm based and Sarah had research going on in India which I got involved in and one thing led to another and we've been working on well-being research for about 11 years now. Brilliant. Thanks, Shreya. And um, so the audience can get to know um, you both really quickly. Sarah, um, what makes you happy? OK, well, as Shreya will say, <clears throat> we both had a bit of difficulty with this question. Um, <laughs> I came down to going for a swim. <clears throat> I'm a swimmer. and um, I like that. Yeah, I reliably feel better afterwards. Thanks, Sarah. Shreya? Um, a good book and the winter sunshine on my back. Oh, brilliant. I love that. I love that. Um, so into the into um, into our technical questions. So um, are happiness and well-being the same idea? And there's a second part to the question, which I'll just read out, which what makes you focus on one or the other? Question mark. So over to you guys. Go ahead, Shreya. OK, so. I guess I would say, no, they're not the same thing. And I'll pick up again from where, you know, Sarah said that we had a lot of discussion about this question about what makes us happy. So I guess I'd say that I'm a bit uncomfortable using the word happiness in general. And so I, and that brings me to why happiness and well-being are not the same. So happiness is quite an individualized sort of idea. You know, you know it sort of belongs to the person. And you think, when you're thinking of happiness and the way people talk about happiness, it almost implies as if the person is themselves capable of changing how they feel or responsible for how they feel. And they can change that simply by changing their behavior. Um, but it also has this really strong positive spin, which seems to imply that any kind of negative emotion might be um, you know, necessarily bad for you. And I don't know whether that's 
that's really the case. I think that's one of the uh, key things that I think about when I'm uh, constantly, when I hear the word happiness. And it doesn't sort of take into account how happiness might, you know, it's it's thought of as, of as a psychological state, but it doesn't take into account how this might be linked to our environment or, you know, where we are. Um, there may be so many other factors outside of us that contribute uh, to our happiness, which it might simply not take account of. No, it's, it's really useful, um, Shreya, because even in our own evolution of the understanding of happiness, one of the things that we've encouraged companies to do is take out a happiness target um, for, for the exactly the point that you that you make out, which is happiness. We see happiness as something that that goes up and downs and fluctuates, but up or down doesn't mean bad or good. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just a different it's just a different state. And I, and I think you're right. It's almost like a rebrand needed there where you think of ha like a high happiness as good and low happiness as bad. So it's, right. so it's so useful to hear that from your perspective. And, and I suppose the second part then, what makes you focus on one or the other? Yeah, so as you might have understood, we prefer the term well-being and that's what we tend to focus on. And it's a much broader term. And happiness might be part of well-being. Uh, although, you know, very often people tend to use them interchangeably. So it can yeah. be quite confusing what these terms mean. So I guess I'll, I'll talk about how we think about well-being. Uh, what what, what well-being tends to do, if you think in terms of well-being rather than in terms of happiness, is that there's more space to make interconnections between various aspects of life. Um, so, you know, how do your relationships, for instance, affect how, how you feel within yourself or about the things that you're doing? Those interconnections are much more easily made if you're thinking about a person's well-being. And it takes into account that context, it takes into account the effects of being part of a community, for instance. Um, it uh, looks also... But I think the, the other important aspect of talking about well-being, and this goes back to the fact that a lot of the research that Sarah and I have done, all the research that Sarah and I have done, uh, has been in non-Western contexts. And mm. so we also think about it in terms of how people describe their well-being differently depending on where they are. So, you know, a non-Western understanding of well-being and, you know, how, how, how does culture make you think of your well-being differently? Uh, I think that's yeah. what we're very concerned with. Uh, so sort of, again, going back to what you talked about earlier, that, you know, happiness seen as high, low happiness seen as something negative, but maybe that's not the case everywhere. Maybe that's, only true in some places. Yeah, and I, I think that's such an import, important point for our listeners because a lot of people who listen to this are involved in, in, in job roles like HR. Um, and one of the reasons that we didn't specifically go into employee engagement is because we found it a very westernised um, thing, mm -hmm. um, whereas we found happiness a global thing. Um, 
but so this brings us on to the next question. And actually, um, in the prequel, Sarah mentioned um, we were talking about how much you understand well-being or happiness or whatever. And, and Sarah, you, I know I'm jumping another question in here, but you said you have quite a handy framework now for you for yourselves to understand what well-being is. Could you could you share us what what you mean by having a framework to understand well-being? Yes, sure. Um, so. You know how, how things go on, you become sort of simpler over time. So in terms of understanding well-being, what we found, as Shreya said, we talked to lots of people um, and, and having listened to them and the way that they put it, we've kind of boiled it down to three elements. So one is having enough. So it's having enough to look after yourself, to look after your family, having enough to share with other people. So the material, aspect of well-being is actually very important and it's something that um, a lot of the work on on well-being it emphasizes even when it's on well-being and not happiness it emphasizes psychological well-being or what they call subjective well-being um, and it really misses out the material and i think that it's not because the material is more important to people in um in situations particularly of marginality and poverty as we have been researching but it's that those of us who are better off can afford to forget about it we don't have to keep thinking yeah. about it it's not that it doesn't matter it does matter but we can take it for granted so that having enough yeah. is really critical for well-being and the second aspect the relational aspect so that's that's what we call a material aspect the relational aspect is being connected and this is something that you know as you will have seen in your studies of happiness comes up consistently across lots of different approaches. I think all different approaches to, to well-being and happiness talk about the importance of, of relatedness, of being connected with other people. Um, and that, of course, that's how people think about themselves as well. So it's not just that it's important to me to have the friendship with Shreya, for example, though it is, um, but also that in a sense, she's become a part of who I am over these years of working together. We are a kind of, so I am a different person because of my relationship with Shreya. So there's a, so there's a sense in which that, that relationality is not just about separate individuals um, having something to, to offer one another, but actually that our being is somehow interrelated over time. So when I, you ask me about well, my well-being, I can't think of it apart from, you know, how are my sons doing, for example. Yeah. So that yeah. being connected is the second really important part of, of, of well-being. And then the third, which does come more to the, the happiness side, is, of course, feeling okay. So the subjective side of well-being. I think yeah. um, it's not a well-being approach if it doesn't have some aspect of, of the subjective, how people are thinking and feeling about their lives and the thinking part is important it's not just feeling but it is thinking and of course those two go closely together so that kind of center yeah. for us of well-being that having enough being connected feeling okay but then as, as Shreya was talking earlier we need to go beyond that so beyond thinking about individuals or even about families or or communities to think well what is it within the environment that actually either enables or undermines well-being because we're not just just we're not individuals separate from other people we're also not individuals separate from the context in which we are yeah so that's the the next 
the next kind of level, which we call kind of well-being promoters or possibly underminers. So it's the structures and processes that are um, that are kind of driving yep. re relations within nice. the context. And then you've got obviously you've got personal questions. So whether I'm feeling how I'm feeling on a particular day is partly about you know where I'm at. It's partly about my own personal history, how I respond to situations, um, and 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 so on. So there is a very important personal dimension within that kind of what drives well-being. But then, you know, yeah. what makes a difference to that? Then there's the societal. So I am who I am. You know, I'm a white middle-class woman who has grown up in a very privileged part of the world. Um, and, and so how I understand things is very much shaped by that and what happens to me. I don't get picked up by police just for driving a car, for example. Um, other yeah. people do. So that societal dimension is really important. And then, of course, we can't, you know, in these days of, of the climate crisis, forget about the environment. So the environmental yep. context is also important. So when we're thinking about um, well-being, yeah, we need to think about what is well-being, what does it kind of consist of, but then we also need to think about that broader context of what is promoting well-being within the context. And in that situation, then we think about personal dimensions of um, what's going on within the self and within personal relationships we think about the societal what's going on in the wider society in terms of social distance and the politics and economics of what's going on and the environment what's going on in terms of the natural environment and um and the resources that we that we are using and perhaps abusing in our pursuit of well-being yeah, Sarah, so useful to have that framework. And, and it's interesting on your second point, because if we run correlation analysis against our entire database, the thing that um, impacts happiness of it, just specifically employees the most that we see is relationships with colleagues. Yeah. So it's so interesting to, to hear that. Um, so on the, so on, the on, on the next question, how do you judge or know whether people are experiencing well-being or not? Yeah. So um, I probably go back to the framework that Sarah just talked about. So talking about you know the material, the the the, the, the relational and the subjective. So we know, for instance, that a there has to be a satisfaction of some essential level of material comfort. I mean, we know that unless that's sort of there for everybody, there isn't. A sense of well-being, um, and that sort of sort of minimal sort of material satisfaction is also linked um, to what you're able to give to others, and that affects your relationships with others. So mm. both things, and in fact, your relationships with others might affect your ability to satisfy your material conditions. So you know who you know and. Uh, how well you know people might affect, for instance, um, how well you're able to do economically, you know, for instance, yeah. in the, in, in, especially in the context where we've done our research, it matters a lot. So these things sort of go together and they're, they're really important. And what's, I think what's significant is that we don't sort of, a, a lot of approaches to well-being tend to chop up 
life into sort of these domains, you know, there are lots of domain-based approaches. And we actually resist that. Not that we haven't done it, we have done it in the past, but we have also come away with the understanding that it's ultimately not, it's not a very um, useful way to understand well-being because what happens is that you may be doing very well in one aspect of life, um, mm. but not so well in another. And what matters ultimately is the overall sense that you have of, of how you know, uh, overall sense of how you think and feel about what you have and what that allows you to do or what that allows you to be. So you could be doing yeah. um, not very well in one aspect of life and still have a sort of sense of well-being. Uh, so we sort of, you know, we, we do resist that. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really important, I think, as from our perspective, to look at life in the round, in the whole, and get that overall sense of where people think they are, how they think they're doing. That's that's the important aspect. No. And I think if I can just come so, in there, um, in terms of, I think you asked about how do we know. So, um, mm. so we would use, all kinds of different measures. So we would want to know actually how are people doing in terms of, you know, have they got enough to eat? Are they, uh, have they got the income that they need to cover their needs and so on? So there's that kind of objective measure that we would think is quite important. But we would also want to have um, various kinds of subjective measures. So how they are, um, how they are feeling about their level of income, for example, as well. So we, we, I mean, I can't go into the detail here, obviously, but we, we use a whole range of objective and subjective measures, both things that people say themselves and things that are more, um, that you can, you, know, you can see. So mortality rates and that kind of thing would also be an objective measure of well-being. Um, yeah. Yeah. For another conversation, I think, okay. our whole... No, yeah. And, and I'll just add one more thing to that, which is that a lot of those measures, while there's, a, you know, you have, we might have a general template of what those measures might be, uh, the, they would also emerge from the context in which people are living. So culture and context is also important with those measures. No. And, and Shreya, before I forget to ask, um, at the beginning you mentioned how a lot of your study is in non-Western cultures, mm -hmm. just so uh, we, we've so we can imagine it where, where are you talking about when you describe that so we've done research in india we've done research in zambia um sarah you've done research in bangladesh, bangladesh as well yeah so no, it's, really, it's really useful for us for us to imagine it Shreya, which, which, which sort of le leads on to the next question but what is distinct about your research on on well-being um, happiness question mark so i think what's distinctive is the emphasis that we place on the relational um, and the way we try to i mean just sort of to be crude about it a lot of of well-being or happiness approaches try to fix the person and we don't try to fix the person we're more about kind of fixing the context. Yeah. So that would be, I think, distinctive. So there's the emphasis on the relational, and as Shreya said, not working with domains, partly because it just doesn't work. I mean, you know, you have this kind of wonderful 
the main model. But when you go out into the field, you'll find people, you know, you ask about something, they answer about something else. When you do the stats, you find they don't stack up in the way you, you thought they would. So yeah. at a practical level, it doesn't work. And of course, theoretically, for us, it doesn't work either because of our, our relational our relational approach. Yeah, and all, all our neuroscientists would, would say, yeah, your, your body and your brain doesn't doesn't allow you to do that no. anyway, which is why you come up with your best ideas when you've come for a nice walk. And I think the other thing about our approach is that we, we very much emphasise process. So it's the so relationship is about flow, it's about movement, it's it's not about a kind of a state that you reach, but it's about the interrelatedness of things and the way that well being emerges out of the way different kinds of factors come together. Yeah. And um, we've got a lot, lot. We've got a lot of people who love their stats that are listening on on that. Before we move on from the distinct, are, are there any any good stats that, that that you can share with us at all from from your research that you think stands out? My research has mainly been qualitative, so we we are not um, we're not stats people. It's something we certainly want to develop. Yeah. Is is ways in which you can, you know, how do you capture a statistical picture of things in movement i mean it's a real challenge it's something that excites us but it's not something that we as yet um, managed to achieve yeah well we'll have to have a chat about that offline there's lots of exciting there i think exciting is the right word on that one um so last last question um which is always my favorite question which is what is the most surprising thing you've found in your research Try. I think I would say that the degree to which the degree to which self-representation, so how people want to talk about themselves, the degree to which it influences what they say. So, you know, it might, even in an anonymous survey, uh, we found that there are times people want to go back and correct their answers because they're uncomfortable about what their immediate response might have said about them. Mm. I think that's really significant. Yes, that's so, that that's so fascinating, isn't it? Because we even at the Happiness Index, because the whole point of the Happiness Index is supposed to be independent. We're supposed to be an independent voice, mm. um, and we're a smallish company. When you look at how many employees that we are taking data from, and we sometimes get people call the office and asking if ask if they can change their response. <laughs> um, and it always, it always, yeah, it's the same thought because because the, the, the fact is that's that's how they felt in that moment in time. And obviously, there's the post rationalisation bit. Right. But I, I, fascinating. Any, any other surprises in there? I think I mean in general, just just on that one again, it's I mean it's not surprising, is it? Because we, you know, culturally and societally, we place such an emphasis on happiness. And basically, if you're not happy, you're a loser. So it's not, it's not surprising that people feel it's really important to report themselves as happy, whatever they're actually feeling. Mm. Um, but I yeah. think, yeah, in general, we were really, we were very surprised about how much of our research ended up involving thinking about methods and actually becoming quite critical of a lot of the methods um, that are widely used. And people often don't, there's certain bits of methods they talk about, but there's other bits that they don't. Um, so yeah, we were we were surprised. We didn't set out to, to spend as much time as we did spend on thinking about um, yeah what's making people respond as they are. 
and what is the best way um, really to, to get as true a picture as we can of, of what's going on for them. Um, well, guys, um, Sarah and Shreya, um, our time is up, but I just want to say I've learned so much and everyone, people can't see you, but we had, um, obviously we had a video call beforehand and, and every time you guys are talking about your work, I can, I can sense how passionate you are about it from, from your body language. So it's amazing to hear what you've done, but also to hear you mention that you're excited about the next stage in the future, because for us to keep hearing more of this research is just it's exciting for us and, 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 and really important. So just from myself and the listeners, Shreya, uh, Shreya and Sarah, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to share your story. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. It's been, it's been great. Thank you, Matt. That was really good. Thanks, guys. Have a nice lunchtime. You too. You too. Cheers.